Welcome to Ed Ideas, relevant conversations for Christian education. As image bearers of God, we have been created to actually carry out this work of cultivation, unpacking, unfurling, so that making is how we be human. Anytime culture is going through transition and there's significant change, you can either look at it as, hey, this is the worst thing ever, or what an opportunity. We know that all adolescents are asking some really direction-setting questions in their life. The very first thing said about us in the Hebrew Scriptures is not that we are bad, that we are dirty, that we are sinful, that we are shameful, that we are anything. The very first thing said about us is we bear the image of God. Welcome to Ed Ideas. It's Brandon Tatum, and today we have a special guest. Her name is Dr. Mallory Wyckoff. She's a professor at Lipscomb University, and she's really going to help us think through how, how do we work with students or how do we call students into contribution that have experienced trauma. We know Generation Z is a generation that, that has experienced quite a bit of trauma, and I know our teachers and our schools um, are, are working and walking alongside students that are struggling with some pretty heavy things. And so Dr. Wyckoff really helps us um, think through how to best walk alongside these students and minister to them. Please enjoy Mallory from the conference stage. Hi friends, I'm so glad to be with you all these, these few days. I realized when I uh, woke up this morning and went down to breakfast that uh, our friend Luke and I were dressed identically. And I was hoping that using Slido, we could play a game of who wore it better. And uh, Luke just happened to take an early flight this afternoon. I'm pretty sure he knew who would have won that battle. So I'm just going to say thank you in advance, trusting that you all would have made the right choice in that. Um, So first, let me make just a brief disclaimer. Uh, I'll be talking about some things that are sensitive in nature. I will do so uh, with sensitivity and care. Uh, But please know that if at any point you need to practice self-care and uh, check in with yourself, please feel free to do so, whatever that needs to to look like for you. So I just want to mention that on the front end. My husband is an improv comedian. Uh, In fact, he is in Panama City Beach right now uh, performing shows all week for high school students. Um, I stand before you dressed in very dark clothing talking about trauma. So he and I are a little bit different, uh, but it works. It really works somehow. Uh, But I mention that because one of the basic principles of improv comedy, which some of you are probably familiar with, is this notion of yes and. That is that improv comedians are trained to, rather than blocking what their partners on stage have said and trying to shift in a different direction, to always be open to receiving what the, their partners have said and saying yes to that, and so you're saying yes and you're adding to it and you're building to it. Uh, and so I just want to say from the outset that that is the intent that I have in my presentation today is to say yes. Yes to so much of what has been said. I want to affirm the absolute importance of calling ourselves and others into a life of service, into an orientation of seeking to care for and be present to other people to offer of ourselves to them. and. I want us to do so in ways that pay attention to the traumatized bodies that we are serving in our schools, in our churches, and even our own. And there are some really important things that I think we have to consider if we are going to do that well and in life-giving ways. So that's what I want to spend uh, a few minutes uh, talking about with you this afternoon. First, I want to share with you a story about my friend Sarah. 
Uh, this is not her real name. I uh, use a, a, a false name for her to sort of protect her identity. My friend Sarah found herself for two decades trapped in uh, one of the most brutal experiences of, of sex trafficking imaginable. So again, for almost two decades, she experienced all manner of, of torture and abuse and assault. And perhaps one of the most um, unimaginable pieces of this is that uh, this particular ring was run by her father and her uncle. Her father was a uh, well-known and well-respected political figure where she was from. And so you can imagine that she felt very little recourse to uh, tell her story, to escape. Uh, and even if she did sense uh, empowerment and being able to do so, uh, what is true for her is true for so many of us who are trauma survivors, is that we often internalize the shame, and we often assume this must have some be our fault. I've been told that I'm unworthy, I am no good, and I begin to uh, believe it, and that was certainly true for her. I had the honor of getting to know Sarah in my uh, previous work that, that Jeff had mentioned um, when I was working with an organization that served young women who were dealing with various forms of sort of life-controlling issues, whether it be eating disorders, uh, self-harm, chemical dependency, all sorts of things. And about 70 to 75% of the young women that we served there and worked with were uh, sexual trauma survivors. And so that's how I got to uh, meet Sarah. She honored me by inviting me into her story and her experiences. And I got to walk with her through her time there and then through her after her graduation from the program. And there's nothing like sitting with, with a woman who's that's her story. And then hearing certain uh, sermons or religious content or being exposed to different religious stimuli and seeing the impact that it's having on this woman right in that moment. Because of her lived experiences of trauma, she's filtering everything that she is seeing and hearing and experiencing through that filter, just as each of us has our own set of filters, some of which are informed by, by trauma. And so I began to think about that, and I wondered, if I'm here studying theology, I'm in seminary, then all of that matters nothing. If the way that I'm thinking about it, the way that I'm communicating, the way that I am behaving becomes further traumatizing to her unintentionally, I have to figure out, and obviously then try to help others figure out, how do we craft our, our language, our behavior, our practices, our vocabulary in such ways that my friend Sarah, who has, has now escaped two decades of sex trafficking, is not re-victimized and re-traumatized by what I do or say, or by, but why, by what you do or say. Uh, so I carried her story, I carried other women's stories with me when I was in a classroom, when I'm studying theology, when I'm thinking about all these things. I remember one afternoon in particular, and we're sitting around, a beautiful a bunch of, of folks that I got to study with, and I was honored to get to do so, and we were talking about this concept of kenosis, which uh, you might be familiar with. It comes from the, uh, the well-known um, Christ hymn in Philippians 2, this idea of Christ self-emptying, Christ giving of himself for the sake of the other, for the sake of the world. And it struck me very quickly in this really important conversation that we were having that I would not have wanted Sarah to be sitting in the room with me because the ways we were talking about self-emptying, giving of ourselves for the sake of the other, would be one of those things that's further traumatizing for her because if you've spent, whether it's your whole life or a season of life, however brief, 
being forced to give of yourself, having no sense of agency in that, having no sense of choice, then when we as Christians ask friends like Sarah to give of herself for the sake of the other, there's no way to not hear it outside of, of it being uh, dramatic. And so, again, I would continue to be passionate about this, and I thought, this is what I, I need to study, because if, if this is what I'm experiencing in a room of beautiful, wonderful, well-intentioned ministers who love God and who want to care for their people well, then I can only imagine how much worse it is for folks who are not nearly as careful and intentional. So I decided for my dissertation, dissertation research and my doctoral program to, to study this, as, as Jeff mentioned. I was honored to get to sit down with women in their living rooms, uh, in their offices, in church buildings, and I got to ask them questions. I wanted to know, what is it like for you to hear and experience and feel various religious stimuli or religious language, and how does that interface with your experiences of, of sexual trauma? And I learned so much from them and was so, as I said, honored and, and grateful to get to, uh, to sit with them and for them to invite me into that. And I learned uh, all sorts of beautiful things, some of which I'll, I'll share with you today. Uh, some of you in your lines of work, whatever the, the particularities there may be, are aware of folks in your communities and in your places of service that have experienced sexual trauma. Some of you might have just assumed that it's, it's the case but don't necessarily know the personal, personal connections there. Uh, but the statistics bear out that one in three women and one in seven men by the age of 18 are victims of sexual trauma. One in three women and one in seven men. My sense is that those numbers are actually pretty conservative, considering how uh, underreporting is a significant problem with uh, sexual abuse and domestic violence and so forth. Uh, but the stats we have do indicate that it's at least one in three and one in seven. Uh, about 80% of those occur, um, excuse me, I wanna double check this before I say it wrong. 80% uh, of those is the, the perpetrator is a family member and the other 20%, uh, most often it's a, it's a close family friend or, or at least an acquaintance, somebody that this person knows and should have reason to trust. Uh, about 14% of these cases occur before the child is even reaching the age of six. Uh, so, what's perhaps even, uh, in addition to all that, maybe even most important for you all to know, is that these statistics are the same whether the family is religious or not. It doesn't matter if they attend church or not, or claim some sort of allegiance to God or not. The statistics are the same. And so whether you are, t are working with students in your youth group, or you're teaching them a classroom, or however you are serving, what we might like to assume is that this kind of thing happens outside of that space, and I can promise you it doesn't. Right now, there are children there are adolescents, adolescent students. Uh, there are folks who, are, um, who have been traumatized and who are actively being traumatized in all sorts of ways, and particularly uh, through, through sexual trauma. And so I want to help us think about what do we do with that in our given vocation, in our given roles. We all may not be therapists or, or trauma specialists, and so our work is not going to be walking through with these people through their particular journeys of healing. And yet, our roles do call us to create very safe spaces 
in which the work that we do can, can contribute to and lend to that sort of healing rather than further being, uh, for them being harmful. So I want to talk about that, and because my, my training is in theology, the best way I know how to do that is through a theological lens. So you might be familiar with this, uh, this image. This is an icon brought to us uh, in the 15th century by the Russian iconographer named Andrei Rublev comes from the story that you're likely familiar with in Genesis 18, where three visitors come to Abraham and Sarah, who uh, practice hospitality for them and set up a meal and, and space for these three visitors. And of course, uh, Christians throughout the centuries have sort of looked back at this text and assumed this is, uh, this is the three persons of the, the Trinity. And so that's what Rublev is, is uh, demonstrating here, the three persons of a Trinity gathered around a table. And all the things that I've said to you about trauma survivors are true, and yet what is most true about them, what is most true about you, and most true about me is that we bear the image of God. And that is more true than anything else that is said about us or done to us or anything that we do or might say. What is most true, what is irrevocably true, is that we are image bearers of God. The very first thing, thing said about us in the Hebrew Scriptures is not that we are bad, that we are dirty, that we are sinful, that we are shameful, that we are anything. The very first thing said about us is we bear the image of God. And if that is true, then we ought to be orienting our lives around that and saying, who is God? How is God? What is God like? And therefore, how might I live my life and shape my life? I think this image, this icon helps us think about some of those things. You'll notice that, obviously, the three persons of the Trinity are sort of ranged around this table. And the way that their heads are even uh, depicted leaning towards one another, despite the unfortunate facts it gives them about eight chins, is that uh, it demonstrates the sort of uh, deference that they offer to one another. These three persons of the Trinity exist in community. They cannot be extracted from community. Trauma often extracts a person from community. It severs those relational uh, ligaments. It severs internal ligaments emotionally and mentally, and it severs communal ligaments. The three persons of the Trinity here are in full and complete communion with one another. Each person has equal value in this community, and you cannot separate their identity outside of this, this community of love and dignity. As I said, their, their heads are leaned towards each other, each other, demonstrating their deference to one another. There is full and complete mutuality between the three persons of the Trinity. There is full and complete reciprocity between the three persons of the Trinity. They do exist for the sake of the other, knowing that the other is existing for their sake. And that process continues on in this beautiful divine dance of equality and dignity and love and grace. And the way that, that Rublev uh, created this image invites us as the viewers right here in the middle to see that we are invited to take our seat Woo, gosh, we are invited to take our seat at this table to join God in this beautiful divine dance that we as image bearers of God are invited to, to join God here. And again, to take our cues from how we arrange our lives and how we exist for the sake of others, knowing that they are existing for our sake. But what matters so much is to keep in mind that you cannot give of yourself if you do not have a sense of self from which to give. The three persons of the Trinity know fully and completely who they are. They know their identity. No, they know their power. They know their purpose. 
And in knowing all of those things and knowing that they have full agency and full freedom and full voice, they use all of those parts of themselves in community and extend that to us and invite us to join in that community. That's the kind of life we're invited into. That's the kind of community that we ought to be creating, whether it's within schools or churches or whatever, whatever it may be. But as I said, for so many of us and for so many of our students, at least one in three young women and at least one in seven young men, their experiences of sexualized trauma have ripped away that sense of self because they have been told explicitly and or implicitly that you and your body exist for the sake of the other. You and your body exist for another person's desires, for another person's perversion, for another person's pleasure. And then they come into our religious communities and they hear a pretty similar message and it can be really difficult to distinguish the two, right? And so, let's say my friend Sarah gets to the point where she's healthy enough that she can be an active part in a, uh, in a community, a church community or whatever it may be, and she hears the message, you need, to, you, know, you need to be serving, you need to be contributing, you need to be giving. It's really difficult for, not, for her to not hear that, oh, right, okay, I'm here just for the sake of the other. This isn't to say that Sarah has nothing to offer and that the call for her to be a contributor and a creator and one who serves and gives is somehow um, negated because of her trauma. It's not. In fact, one of the points in my research that I, uh, that I appreciated the most is that in the women describing what was most helpful for them in, um, in church and religious settings was their ability to participate and to contribute. But there are some things that are going to be really important for us to figure out how do we shape that space in a certain way so that their bringing themselves to the table can be in an honoring way to themselves rather than further, further victimizing. Or that it's coming out of a place of, you know, I feel, I feel dirty, I feel less than, I feel worthless, and so I'll just I'll, I'll give, what I, give what I can for, for everybody else because they matter more than I do. What would it look like for us to shape communities to say, because of your dignity and because of your worth and because of the fact that you bear the image of God and that is what's most true about you, regardless of anything else, we invite you into a space where you get to bring your full self to the table and you get to serve and you get to contribute, knowing that others are doing the same for you in ways that will not take away from who you are but will invite you into its fullest expression. That's a fundamentally different starting point. So I want to offer a few options for, for uh, ways that I think we can begin to cultivate and nourish those types of, of settings for all of us and particularly for, uh, for trauma survivors. So you've already heard me talk about a couple of these things. I'm absolutely convinced that if we're not talking more about human dignity than we are human depravity, then we're missing it. Women told me over and over in my interviews with them, I don't need one more message telling me how crappy of a person I am. I already believe that about myself. My experiences have told me that. I need to know that I'm good. I need to know that I bear God's image. I need to know that I'm a full and complete human being. They also know well the depravity of humanity. They know well what, it's look like, what it looks like to experience a perversion of how humans ought to live and engage with one another. They've seen that. They've experienced it in their physical body. 
And so it's not to try to pretend that humans are somehow, that we're all, all doing just fine, right? They know better than, than uh, some of us just how not fine some things are. And yet, the reason that that is uh, important for us to talk about, important for us to think about, is because it takes away from the image of the one that we bear. And because we are made in God's image, then we get to say no to all things that do not reflect that image. So, I'll encourage you, find ways as often as you can to affirm the dignity of human beings, to affirm our value, to affirm our worth, and, and to be doing so far more often than, the, than using language about our sinfulness and our depravity. Uh, the next thing I want to offer uh, to you is that we necessarily need better and fuller ways of talking about sin. If the only way that we know how to think about sin is the bad things that we do, that message is so difficult. I'm convinced it's difficult for any of us, but particularly for this population, it's so difficult for the women that I have worked with to not see themselves as being guilty for the things that they have been forced to do. And I will not share with you what some of those things are, but they feel incredible guilt and shame for thinking somehow I'm, I'm at fault for this. They need to know that sin is not merely the bad things that we do, but the things that are done to us. That the violation of our bodies and our dignity and our worth, that that is sin. And sin is all that is not as it should be. Not because God keeps some list of rules hoping that we keep them right, but because because God has created a good and beautiful world, which God, God has called good, and wants that to be a beautiful and flourishing place for all of creation. And sin is everything that seeks to disrupt that creation, your body and my body included. We need fuller ways of talking about sin that so that these young women, if they're in your youth group, if they're in your classrooms, whatever it may be, that they know very clearly that every violation done to their body, to their emotions, to their mind, that that is sin. Not because they have made a choice in doing something wrong, but because of others' choices have brought them harm. And that that grieves God. Sometimes, for these women, knowing that others grieve for them allows them to grieve for themselves. Sometimes they're seeing my tears for them opened up something in them that allowed them to cry for themselves in a way they hadn't been able to uh, before. I'm convinced they need to know that God is grieved by the sin done to them in their own bodies. Next, I think we need to be, to be um, really emphasizing the importance of boundaries with students. And sometimes this is just really basic, practical things. But if these young women have grown up in homes that are not stable, and they've had no sense of whose body is whose, and do I get to control my own body, and when do I get to to, uh, say what I will or won't do, or if they've not had that, and many of us haven't, you didn't have that growing up, then churches and schools and other settings can be spaces that can affirm You get a voice. You get to say yes, and you get to say no, and both ought to be respected. Whether it's regarding sexuality or anything else, we get to say, this is your body. This is your space. It's yours. You get to own it. 
Though these sorts of um, boundary principles, I think, are essential for us to talk about with students. Um, there's a great book by uh, Cloud and Townsend, sort of a, you know, a, a world-famous book at this point, and they offer some really basic, important principles about, about boundaries, about getting to use your voice, about knowing what is and what isn't your responsibility. So many of the women that I've worked with carry immense false responsibility, believing that it is theirs to keep everything running, to take care of other people, even as they have no ability to care for their own selves. And you can see there the import for our own conversation about becoming contributors and ones who offer of, of themselves. I'm convinced that we have to help all students find their sense of voice and their sense of agency. Do we have practices that, and teachings that help formulate this in our students? Um, I'm also convinced that this is particularly important for women and for, for young women in our youth groups, in our schools, in our churches, for a lot of factors. One, because we're far more likely to be sexually abused and assaulted and traumatized because women are conditioned to not take up space. We are conditioned to uh, feel like we need to be less than and hide. And so we respond by physically, maybe by taking up less space, by starving ourselves. Or we, we are more quiet we refuse to say our, our beliefs or opinions because we don't want to be too loud and take up too much space. We're conditioned in so many ways to do that. And then you put us in settings where we have a high emphasis on purity and certain ways of defining that sense of purity, and it is a perfect recipe for women to not have a full sense of agency and voice and power and dignity. It's important for all of us, but it is especially important for our women students. And so are we then teaching them one thing to say, yes, you, you are created in the image of God and you have voice, and then we're not offering them the full space and, and ability to then actually do so. I can tell you that there are many churches and religious settings that I would never want the women that I work with to go to because it would be a horrendous act of injustice for me to tell them, you have just come out of an experience where you have been violated and forced to exist in the shadows. You've not been able to use, use your voice. Your voice and your dignity have uh, been violated. And then send you into a church where, what do you know, you're going to have to also be quiet and hidden. We must affirm the dignity and value and the voice of all of our students and help them find that, women especially. We have to do a better job of connecting with our bodies and talking about our bodies in healthy ways. If the only times that we're talking about bodies is in the purity talk every six months, we're missing it. We are embodied creatures. We are made in the image of God, and we exist in these bodies that are full of dignity. Do we have practices that help bring our bodies into places of worship, into experiences with the divine, or do we allow it to all remain a cognitive exercise, in which really, if we somehow could extract our brains and just have them present in a room, it wouldn't make much of a difference if our bodies weren't there? Or are we inviting our students to certain postures of prayer that require their bodies? To know that God desires for your full self to be in communion with God. One, of, one practice that I do, and I encourage some of my uh, folks that I work with in spiritual direction to do, is to pray naked. 
because of the vulnerability that it, that it offers, but also for the dignity that it affirms. That as I sit here, stripped away of everything, before the divine whose image I bear, knowing that this God is not ashamed of me, that even if my body might have been the site of trauma, that it is also host to the very spirit of God who lives within me, the very God who I'm able to commune with? Are we encouraging practices? Are we ourselves doing practices that use our bodies? Are we thinking about our bodies in healthy ways? Are we talking about sexuality in healthy ways? Or is it only to make sure that students follow a certain list of of uh, perceived sort of purity principles. Because if so, I promise it is incredibly unhealthy for all of us and especially for our young men and women who've experienced sexualized trauma. Lastly, I'm convinced that we must craft spaces and have rituals of lament. We have such a rich history in the Judeo-Christian faiths of lament particularly the Hebrew scriptures and the Psalms, are spaces that we are able to go and to connect with and find that even when we do not have words to express to God the lament and the grief that we feel, they are provided for us. And we get to join and enter into that knowing that not only is God okay with our doing so, but God delights in the connection with us and in our honesty because there is no other option to be fully human. Do we have spaces where our students get to come in and lament and grieve, whether it's about injustice done to them or injustice in the world? Or if they seek to do so, do then we, because of our own fear, begin to try to shut that down and give them the answers so that they feel better and become more optimistic and positive? Are we lamenting and grieving the injustices done to ourselves and in the world? Are we bringing that sort of honesty and raw, raw vulnerability before the divine? Because when we do so, we ourselves become a space that invites others, and particularly these students, to get to do so. It's incredibly rare, the statistics bear out, it's incredibly rare for a minister in a, a church pulpit to even talk about things like sexual abuse, sexual trauma, domestic violence. And when they do, the very small percentage that does, uh, they've named that they do so not because they believe it's an issue within their congregations, but, that it's, but that outside of them in their, uh, in their communities that it is, is an issue. Having a, a routine practice and ritual of lament is a space that we very clearly get to name all the injustices done to us, even the injustices that we have, have done, the injustices we experience in the world, and particularly that done to us regarding sexual trauma, we get to name that, we get to grieve that, and to do so together. And when a young woman dares to, uh, to be vulnerable and to risk telling a little bit about her story and experiences, and to do so in the space of lament, and sees that we do not flee, but that we stay with her, we do not seek to offer the answers and fix it, but we are fully present with her. There's something incredibly healing in that for us and for them. Uh, the last thing that I want to uh, offer you is one of my favorite hymns. It's called Sacred the Body, and I just want to read these lyrics. And I want you just to notice what experience are you having as you hear these, these lyrics? What do you notice in your physical body, in your emotions? What thoughts does it, does it trigger for you? 
And I also want you to consider how might the space in which you work and serve be different if this is the type of theology and praxis that were, uh, that were to be common. Sacred the body God has created, temple of spirit that dwells deep inside. Cherish each person, nurture creation. Treat flesh as holy that love may abide. Bodies are varied, made in all sizes, pale, full of color, both fragile and strong, holy the difference, gift of the maker, so let us honor each story and song. Love respects persons, bodies, and boundaries. Love does not batter, neglect, or abuse. Love touches gently, never coercing. Love leaves the other with the power to choose. Holy of holies, God ever loving, make us your temples and dwell all we do. May we be careful tender and caring, so may our bodies give honor to you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please hit subscribe and follow our podcast. It's important that we continue these relevant conversations for Christian education.